You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. We're thrilled you're listening this time around. Don't forget to subscribe to Herd through the Apple Podcast app, iTunes, or however you get podcasts. If you want to go one step further, write a review and let us know what you think. I'm Joe Hakeem. Tonight, I'm joined by Nick. Hello. Jason. Hey. Vato. What's happening? And our very special guest, author of Rosé All Day and host of the James Beard Award-nominated Oregon Public Broadcasting Podcast, The Four Top, Catherine Cole. Catherine, thanks for being with us. Hi. Thanks for having me, you guys. Uh, we'll talk to Catherine about The Four Top later in the show. Let's start with the summer's hottest beverage, Rosé. Catherine, the popularity of Rosé is undeniable, but it really surprised me to read in Rosé All Day that it was the first, your book is the first book dedicated to the topic. Why do you think Rosé has never been given the full book treatment? Well, the funny thing is, as I was writing it, it was the only book that was being written on the topic. But suddenly there are three or four Rosé books ah. that are out all at once. And I even told a couple people that I was writing the book. So anyway, I thought I was the first, but that's okay. Um, so why hasn't it been um, written about before, seriously? I think it's because there's been this misperception um, in the in past decades that rosé is not a quality wine. And so it was just sort of written off um, and the wine media just didn't even rate it, taste it and, and rate it until quite recently. Um, so it, it's, it was really fun to look into the history and take a deeper dive into this style of wine because it really hadn't been done before. When you say like the wine has kind of been written off, are you talking about like wine Zinfandels and things like that? Yeah, I think um, it's funny. I was looking through the the media that was available on Rosé, newspaper articles and and magazine articles and that kind of thing. And they all, with their history of Rosé, they all kind of started with World War II, um, which brought us Lancers and Matus which were two pink, fizzy wines that were somewhat sweet. And then also they, everyone sort of fixated on 1975 when uh, Sutterhome White Zinfandel entered the world. And so everyone, everyone's brain was kind of stuck with those two wine styles, both of which are very sweet. Um, and the great thing is I feel like that's people maybe in their 40s and older who remem- either remember those wines or remember their parents drinking those wines. And today we've got this whole new generation of drinkers in their 20s and 30s who don't really have a memory of white zin the way we do, <laughs> the rest of us do. Um, 
so it's great. It's there's a kind of a, a new open mindedness about rosé. Is white zin even a, a thing anymore? Like that, I, I know I used to work for Trader Joe's, and char, there was a Charles Shaw white Zinfandel that sold quite well um, in the store that I worked at. Does that even exist as as an? Or did Charles Shaw go to ro, the rosé route as well? Do you know? You know, you know what you you can still buy Sutter Home white zin, but what's really fun is some of the winemakers in California are making white Zinfandel, but kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek. So they're, they're making really beautiful, serious wines from Zinfandel that they're calling white Zin, but are in fact totally delicious and fantastic wines. Oh, that's interesting. So, yes, you can, get, you can get both styles, actually. Um, so, the, the, uh, so with Rosé, and, and um, it's become more of like a, you say in the book, like maybe even a status symbol um, with... Rick Ross's like Luke Belair, uh, which we have a bottle of tonight. Um, mm-hmm. Jay Z's Ace of Spades, which uh, I am so excited for this. <laughs> the uh, the the cost of Ace of Spades is uh, pretty astronomical uh, comparatively to, to even even this Luke Belair, which is about thirty bucks a bottle. Um, and so Rosé going from going mainstream for one thing, and now it's a status symbol. Why do you think rappers and like the the kind of like. Uh, I don't know what's also called what Hampton Gatorade. Is that what you say in the book? Um, that, like, wh- why has it become such a status symbol uh, as well? Well, I think that the Provence winemakers kind of hit upon something. They realized that people were drinking rosé in a celebratory manner. And so this is one of those brilliant packaging moves um, and marketing moves. They started bottling rosé in bottles that look like champagne bottles, thick bottles with punts that are, you know, heavy and have that narrow neck and a bigger cork. And so just by sort of observing that people were kind of, you know, people were drinking rosé and and clinking glasses and celebrating the arrival of summer. And so they kind of cashed in on that celebratory mood that rosé puts everyone in and and pushed it a little further just by making a, a bigger, heavier bottle. And then they were able to raise the price of the wine and one thing led to another. And here we are. And rosé is, is suddenly almost like champagne. I mean, you're, Ace of Spades, obviously, that is a champagne, so that that is quite expensive. But you, now there are still rosés um, that are in the $100 range, which is amazing. Well, because doesn't Moet and Chandon has a rosé, I feel like for the hip-hop, Crowd. Well, the, are you talking about like the Imperial yeah. Rosé? Yeah. Because like yeah, the champagne, I mean, the Moet really, Champagne is like well, was like a staple champagne for like the hip hop crowd that we've been referencing. And they had a Rosé product. I was wondering if that was like a a gateway. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I think champagne started it for sure. Hmm. And of course, why did the hip hoppers get into champagne to begin with? Rosé or white, that's probably beyond my, <laughs> I, I'm not, I can't go that deep into hip hop history, but I certainly love that Jay-Z bought Ace of Spades after, wasn't he the one who got kind of dissed by Chris Dahl and he was like, screw you guys, I'm going to buy <laughs> yeah. a champagne company and char- charge more than you do. Ha-ha. I think Nick <laughs> is a hip hop historian story. here. Oh yeah, I know tons about hip hop. Right. I think I'm the whitest here <laughs> too. That's <laughs> the whitest here. I was just looking up Urban Dictionary Rosé, and that's what came up. Moet and Chandon. Anyways. 
Well, and when you look at, you know, kind of champagne in general, it has, it's so super visual. So when you look at like a music video, you have the bubbles, you have the noise, you have all of that. There's the status from, you know, the expense and the cost and the rarity. So I could totally see how that makes sense. I mean, cognac, you know, which we're going to be talking about in a couple of weeks for World Cognac Day. I mean, yeah, that has the same thing, you know, that kind of high profiled cost. Cool. And so. Yeah. And then. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Oh, well, I was going to say, so Luke Belair's wine, or Luke Belair's wine, Rick Ross's wine, Rick Ross, who goes by the handle Rosé, his wine, Luke Belair, is not as expensive as champagne, but he's obviously copying that bottle shape and, and the celebratory mood. Um, it's a pink bubbly, but it's from Provence, so it's much more affordable. Hmm. And 30 bucks isn't terrible. I mean, it's definitely more than like your your Corbels and your, you know, the regular Chandon, but... um affordable-ish but even even like the uh the, these being champagnes or uh sparkling, sparkling the the uh still rosé is very affordable um i mean we up, had some upwards, a couple weeks ago with y- our michigan friends yeah we had some vertera uh, st- uh michigan rosé uh, a couple weeks ago and um it's really interesting to me that this this wine is uh thought of so highly now and it goes i mean a, a good rosé can set, only set you back 20 bucks a bottle mm-hmm. not to mention Absolutely. we're also seeing more people carry it too so that was the I, that was the problem with michigan wines is you know they weren't on many of the lists but just the fact of more restaurants carrying the rosé people are getting exposed to it you go to like royce royce has like three rosés by the glass which is you know for the summer so i think just that's helping elevate it you know Artists like our um, authors like Catherine are helping elevate it and get more word out. So I think that's definitely fueling it, uh, the buzz of just kind of the brose lifestyle, if you will. Yeah, and it, seem, <laughs> it seems to me that this uh, – like every time summer comes around, um, it seems like rose is rediscovered. Uh, and it, it's not in – not to say that it ever goes away. Um, I, I tend to drink rose all year, all year long. Um, but when summer comes around, it's, it like takes off. Um, and you see more more of the press touching uh, touching on it and talking about it. Um, and is that, is that simply because of its like refreshing nature? Do you think? Yeah, people. I, I also think there is sort of a subconscious thing with you know the color is so summery. I mean, often it can be sort of an orange sunny color, and it brings to mind you know peonies and roses that bloom in the summer, or peaches, apricots. Um, we grill salmon in the summer. So I, I even think there's some sort of subconscious thing with looking at that beautiful pink color and thinking of, of that season. But, of course, I think we should be drinking rosé year-round, not just in the summer. And often the, uh, the rosés that are darker and a little more concentrated can be delicious in the winter. I served rosé at Thanksgiving. So I don't think it's just for summer. But I understand why people drink it in the summer. Yeah, so that's a good point. So, w- rosé with uh, when, when you pair rosé, um, I, I happen to think it pairs well with turkey, and um, like the kind of the acidity of it w- will cut through like the richness of a Thanksgiving dinner quite well. Um, so, like th- there's that richness, that um, kind of acidity that works well with the rich foods, and then it also works well as a refreshing kind of uh, drink on the beach. It's really a really versatile wine. Absolutely. And, of course, we can't even make generalizations either because there are some rosés that aren't as acidic and there are rosés that 
actually are not refreshing. That's, I mean, I think the, the other thing is we, we assume that all rosés are the same when it's just like white or red. You know, there's a, it can be made from any grape, so it can be anything, depending on what the winemaker's done and, and which grapes was used and where it was grown. So what was your kind of inspiration for writing, uh, aside from there not being much written about rosé, um, what, what's your background uh, in, w- within the wine industry? Well, it's funny because I was the wine columnist for the Oregonian newspaper for 13 years, um, and I was a freelance wine writer. I did the first two levels of um, International Sommelier Guild, um, and I, frankly, was a little burned out, um, especially if you've ever, you guys may have tasted at a professional wine competition, that kind of thing, and you just sit down and taste through hundreds of red wines, and your your tongue just I can't handle any more tannin. Um, And I was literally tired of tasting wine. I know that sounds awful. I know that there are people who are like, you you have the best job in the world. How dare you complain about it? But I realized that more and more I was just reaching for rosé and or sparkling wine because it was refreshing and light and and left me, you know, feeling refreshed rather than heavier. Um, And so I I was really craving rosé. And then through the course of this book, I tasted hundreds and hundreds of rosés, and I never got tired of it. I just This is the wine I could just keep drinking till I die. So I still open rosé every night, and I'm not even writing about it anymore. So there you go. Well, something to point out about the book, too, is it's a, a very modern-looking book. It's um, you know kind of a, a neat shape. There's great graphics in it, um, illustrations. Uh, I, I, it feels nice. The cover has that nice kind of matte-ish feel. Uh, so I think that definitely mm-hmm. helps bring it, you know, kind of elevate it and make it seem like it's not like this snobby, sleepy, you know, subject you're about to embark on. It's something kind of fun and cool. I think so. And the fun thing with the book is, um, because, and I have to totally credit the publisher, Abrams in New York. They're very design focused um, and they had a vision that was beyond what I could have possibly dreamed. Um, and the great thing is that you know, rosé is such a wonderful, w- welcoming style of wine. People who don't think they're wine people will still drink rosé. And so the book is having some terrific crossover appeal. Um, I know that it, I don't know about other lifestyle chains, but I do know that um, anthropology stores and urban outfitters stores are both stocking the book. So people are buying it as a gift just because it looks great and everyone thinks rosé is pretty. And then I'm hoping that they'll crack it open once they've got it on their coffee table and actually read about this very interesting style of wine as well. Um, so one of the things uh, notice it's um, partially a buying guide, uh, which I think is a difficult thing to do with wine across state lines and across, um, you know, trying to even, maybe it's an, maybe it's been published internationally as well. I, I don't know. Um, have it you, is, yeah. Have you found any – has there been any struggle with uh, people finding the wines that are written written about in the book? I know vintages are a whole other issue, and I think you mentioned that you don't even mention the vintages because rosé is meant to be um, drunk fresh, correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I included a few obscure wines, a few really geeky wines that I love, and then a, you know, obviously a few super – rare and expensive wines just because they're fun to read about. But for the most part, the wines that are in the affordable price range, which would be between $1 and $3 signs, I think. I I put kind of a a range with dollar signs um, next to each wine I list. Um, 
most of those I checked and made sure they were stocked either at a pretty commonly used online wine site or at some sort of retail store in multiple locations throughout the U.S. I didn't check for the U.K. and Australia, where I believe the book is also being sold, so apologies to those readers. Um, But most of those wines you can either get in your state for, oh, and apologies to those states who can't receive wine shipments, but, (laughs) or I was going to say orders from someplace like wine.com. We're in such a gray area. There are some places that'll ship to us and some that won't. I don't know if they have to get a specific mm. license or what. And sometimes they do it in oh. alcohol. Sometimes they're just like, yeah, you're getting a shipment of a thing. You don't have to sign for it. Wink. Huh. Well, the other thing is I wanted it to be a general guide as well. So while I did recommend a few ones from each region I wrote about, I also wanted to make them sort of representative of the region. So even if you can't find that specific label... You know, maybe that wine is representative of the style of that place. So, you know, maybe if you're planning a trip to France, you can look for that style of wine. It may not be the same producer, but close enough. Plus, you could take it to a, a good sommelier or wine cellar and say, hey, this is what I'm interested in. Oh, we don't have it, but maybe you could try this. At least that kind of starts yeah. the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And but- so many people say they want something that's, you know, a similar style to something else. And, you know, usually some ideas can, can make that happen. So did you find what, what, when writing this book um, through all the tasting that you did that uh, there, there's a, a vast dif- – obviously there's a vast difference between countries um, and then within regions. And so h- how far uh, of a nuanced kind of tasting did you go in terms of like say France or Spain or California even? Um, I'm so sorry. My dog is trying to climb on me right now. <laughs> can, you, can you repeat that, that question? <laughs> I got um, completely distracted. Sure. Wait a second. Uh, you have to shout out your dog's name if you're going to do that. <laughs> well, you guys will love my dog's name is Bourbon. Nice. <laughs> Jason approves. I do. I, I really do like that. Yeah. <laughs> and apparently he wants to be in on this phone call. I'm, I'm not sure why. But anyway, so, sorry. Can you repeat your question? Sure. I'll ask it a different way. I, I, um, so in terms of regions, so Fr- France, Italy, Spain, uh, California, the U.S., however you, however you uh, want to focus the answer, um, how, how much did you taste uh, within each region and how did you pick out which wines to choose to, to put into the book? Um, I, for some of the regions, some of the more obscure regions like Hungary, um, you know, Yugoslavia, or um, let's see, did I include Yugoslavia? I don't even remember, but some some of the more obscure countries, Israel, India, Lebanon, Slovenia, you know, I was lucky if I got one wine. And if it was super interesting, I would write about it. Morocco, I think I only was able to get one wine. Um, And the problem was, I got the final, um, the final contract, kind of the green light to write the book, I believe in August. And so I had to source all the wines over the winter because the manuscript was due in March. So it was a really quick turnaround. Um, so it was really difficult. Um, so I was able to source quite a few wines from places like Provence where Rosé is obviously everywhere and easy to get. But, um, you know, in some cases, I was only able to find one or two wines, and if it was good enough to write about, I wrote about it and just said, hey, I just, you know, I want you to know that this region of the world is making rosé. Um, 
and so it was less about this is the best one you can find. It might be the only one you can find in the United States, so it's worth writing about, right? Um, and then an interesting thing happened with the regions where I had more access, um, France, Italy, Spain, um, the U.S., that kind of thing, which is, I, and I didn't expect this at all. At first, I was super frustrated that I had to write this book over the winter. I mean, what a drag. It was so hard to get wines. But then it turned out to be a blessing because I was opening the wines after they'd been sitting in the bottle for six months or so. And it was a great test of the quality of the winemaking because some of these wines, quite expensive ones, had literally fallen apart during that time. And so from the wines from the better known regions really were the cream of the crop because these were wines that could sit in bottle for six months, be shipped to me, um, and still taste fresh and delicious. So it was an interesting learning process in that way. And when, when you say... Um Let's let's start with the the sourcing aspect of this. Were, were did you have a list of wines that you like a kind of a wish list of rosés that you wanted to put in the book in the first place, or did you source them by going to your local wine store and and like just buying twenty five bottles of rosé at one time from all different producers? Like how <laughs> how does sourcing in how does sourcing for a wine book work? Well. I would say all of the above. How long is this book? Almost 300 pages. I did everything in my power. So I contacted importers. I con- contacted wholesalers. I contacted marketing and public relations firms that work with wineries. I contacted regional um, trade organizations um, for samples. And then I got online and I ordered wine from every online wine store in the country, I feel like. It was very expensive. The shipping was expensive. And also, of course, I went to all of my local wine shops and just picked up whatever I could find. Um, so it was everything. And so do you have and then a... Of course, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, and then, of course, I was kicking myself for all the summers of rosé drinking I had done and never taken notes because when you're drinking rosé, you don't think, oh, I need to make a note of this. You just enjoy because that's what it's all about. Well, and that kind of segues to my my next question is, do you have a group of friends that kind of, you know, join you on this journey? Like, all right, Catherine has more rosé. Let's head over because you're not going to put away, you know, 300 bottles by yourself. No, 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 no. So my process is I would get, you know, as many wines as I could from one region or subzone and taste through them all blind at the same time. So I've got my paper bags, shove the bottles in the paper bags. Um, taste through whether it's 12 or 24 wines, take notes on each one, figure out which ones were the best, write about those. Um, but, you know, when I'm tasting professionally, I'm spitting, of course. Um, the bottles that were awful or somehow spoiled, I would just pour down the drain. And then, you know, the really delicious ones, I, I think a really good wine, you should be able to cork it and put it in the fridge and it should last a few days. So, um Oh, and the other thing is, I have a Yeti cooler. Do you guys know what a Yeti cooler is? Oh, yeah. Just really nice high-end, uh, like very watertight coolers. Yes. So interesting. Over the winter, I found if you put rosé in a Yeti cooler, or any wine in a Yeti cooler, and seal it up, it is airtight. So I found that rosés would last a week or more, or two weeks, if I had them sealed in my Yeti cooler. So that was kind of cool. Um, but then again, of course I would give tons of bottles to friends. I would 
you know, go to my book club or if someone was having people over for drinks, I'd show up with like 10 bottles of rosé, you know, it, it just made everyone else happy for a year there. <laughs> Happier, I guess. So, so do, do, did any did you uh, use the opinions of anyone else, or, or th- is this book strictly your thoughts, your notes? Um, like when you brought stuff to a party, did you ever ask, like, "Oh, what do you think of this one?" I really, I thought it was really good. Do you agree with my kind of initial thoughts of this wine? Um, a little bit, yeah. And I do always, when I'm assessing wine, I try to step outside of my own taste buds. Um, so I definitely would decide, yeah, I, I should write about this wine, even though I don't like it because I know someone will. And often I would bring that to a party and someone would say, oh, I love this. And I think, good, I, I could tell that this is something that someone else would love. So I think I'm pretty good at having like palate empathy. Is that even a term? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really astute because I, I have this feeling that no matter – I mean, unless it's a really terrible wine. I think if you brought a bottle to a party, um, most people – I shouldn't say most, but anyone, like wine drinkers in general have this kind of like, I don't know, sense of uh, camaraderie. Well, they'll have fun over a bottle of wine regardless of if it's um, maybe not the best quality. So like it, it mm-hmm. has to change the kind of um, – it might change your your kind of opinion of a of a bottle of wine if you have it in the presence of other people rather than alone. Um, would you th- do you think that's a, a, a good assessment of how that how tasting works? Yeah, I mean, I do think once you get into a social situation, you stop noticing the tiny flaws in the wine and just appreciating the fact that you're all drinking wine together. And we all know about this effect. I think it's actually called the Provencal Rosé effect. Um, but it's true of every wine where if you go on this amazing European vacation with your beloved, yeah. you know, partner and you're sitting at a table at sunset and it's beautiful and you're on vacation and you're relaxed, you're like, that was the best wine I've ever tasted. Mm-hmm. And then you buy it at home at your local wine shop and it just doesn't taste as good. It's because of the moment. It's not the wine itself. So, so I think wine always vacations. tastes better when you're drinking with friends. <laughs> More vacations. <laughs> I got to start hanging out with friends. That would be the good start. You got to get friends first. I have to get wine. friends. There's actually a wall up between me and everyone in this room. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back to talk about um, the podcast. All right, Catherine?
Welcome back to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. As I mentioned earlier, Catherine, your podcast, The Four Top, was nominated for a James Beard Award. Congratulations on that honor. That's exciting. Thank you very much. We also won the IACP Award for Best uh, Podcast for 2016. What is is IACP? That's the International Association of Culinary Professionals. And I have been told the IACP Awards are like the Golden Globes of Culinary Awards and the James Beard Awards are like the Oscars of Culinary Awards. So it was a pretty exciting first few episodes. Which is, which is fantastic because you think of the Golden Globes, that's the one where they're having fun, they're drinking, it's less serious. So I think cheers to that. I missed both of the award ceremonies, though, because I didn't think we would even be nominated. <laughs> I, had other, I had other trips planned. That's I a good problem to have. Our, we launched in mid-September of 2016, so this was for 2016. We only had eight episodes, so I thought, oh, there's no way we're even going to be nominated. I'll just send in my stuff just in case. <laughs> and we won both, so I don't know. How does the nomination process work? For, for either either uh, either award, the IACP or the... Uh, yeah, take notes because you should send in your podcast. <laughs> um, I, it, as I recall, it's slightly different for the two. Um, I believe for the James Beard Awards, we had to put together like a two-minute reel of kind of highlights from different shows. Um, and, the, and the IACP, I think maybe we just sent links so, so they could listen on their own. I can't remember though. Don't don't test me on this. <laughs> I was taking notes though. So so uh, I think, and I don't know if this is a sore subject for you, but the Sporkful one for uh, won the James Beard Award, correct? No, no, we no. we actually won it. Oh, you won the James Beard? Which we did, which was a huge surprise because I just assumed the Sporkful would win the James Beard, and then oh. same thing with IACP. We were up against the Splendid Table, and I just assumed the Splendid Table would win. So in both cases, we were like the upset winners. That's incredible. Very, yeah, it was super <laughs> exciting. So, so what, what is it? How does that changed your? Has it changed the way you've uh, done the podcast since uh, since winning the award? Uh, it makes me a little more. Um, I'm more aware that more people are listening, um, but no, it really hasn't. I've I can't, I approached it with a very clear vision, and I'm just sticking to my guns and sticking with that vision. And every time I sort of try something different, I don't think it works. So I just need to stick with what works and keep hoping we can get more and more listeners. For the dozens of new listeners that we're going to send you after this podcast airs, tell us a little (laughs) bit about your podcast. It is a roundtable discussion of the hot button topics in food and beverage culture. Um, the roundtable, just like you guys have found out with your format, I think the roundtable discussion makes for a much more interesting listening experience. Um, I find that a one-on-one interview often is less interesting than when you've got a few different voices and people sharing their ideas and sharing their experiences. Um, the topics we like to talk about, we, we have three topics per episode, and they're all important to food and beverage culture, but not too geeky. They're, they're, they're topics that anyone can relate to. And we try to find a nice balance of fun topics that are just interesting to everyone, as well as hard-hitting news-type topics. And then the other part, the other component to the show is, even though we're in there laughing and having fun and making fun of each other, 
um, I always like to keep in mind the, the relationship between food, beverage, um, culture, sustainability, and human rights. So even if you're talking about something like the juicing trend, I don't know if you've got that going on in Michigan where people think they have to drink like a $10 juice, fresh juice, like three times a day. Do you, do you have those juicing places? Unfortunately, yes. Yeah, we, we have a, uh, uh, yeah. a local chain called uh, Drought that that's uh, popped up and probably has may, maybe upwards of 10 locations now. And um, that's yeah. exactly what they do. That's their whole business model is uh, um, $10 juices. Well, except yeah. for the little so, teeny tiny uh, ginger shot, which uh, will put uh, some hair on your chest. And that's $6. Yeah. So, so yeah. Yeah. So we can, we can start out with that topic, have, having fun and just making jokes about it. And then we kind of get into the serious aspect of, hey, you know, first of all, nutritionally, it's not good for you to just have juice. It's basically just sugar. Um, second of all, the amount of food waste that's generated by these places, they're just, you know, grinding up fruit after fruit after fruit. And, you know, there are all these rinds that are just being thrown away and it's kind of wasteful as well. So, um, so we, you know, we take topics like that where everyone finds them interesting, but maybe we need to dig a little deeper and think a little harder about them. And I have to say your, your podcasts are very enjoyable. Uh, Joe and I binge listened. Uh, to like four oh, of them. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so we, um, we, we've covered some similar topics. We had talked about Trump kind of and his effect on um, the restaurant industry when he came into office. Uh, but also I thought the um, industrial side of food was very interesting. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there were just a number of good topics that were covered. Yeah. And, and so I, I guess let's go back to the, we talked about sourcing with Rosé. How do you, how do you source your guests? Like, do you, um, do you have a wish list of guests you want on or do you, um, do you just cold call people? How does it work? Well, I have to back up and say I had been pitching this show for 10 years. And part of the reason I'd been trying to get it going was I think that Portland really should have national food and beverage media coming out of it. Um, people from New York and L.A. and San Francisco come to Portland to figure out what's going on uh, in the food and beverage community. It's just it's become a culinary destination um, we have a whole food tourism system that's kind of grown up around this fact, this phenomenon. I mean, we have more breweries, wineries, uh, tea makers, and coffee roasters per capita of any any state in the country in Oregon. I mean, it's just crazy. So, first of all, I knew that we could we could have a national show based in Portland, and I knew that partly, I mean, not only because of the resources we have and the great chefs and, and all the great beverages, but also a lot of national food and beverage journalists live in Portland, um, partly for the cost of living, partly because it's just a great food scene. You know, it's a number of factors. It's also a, a great writing community. There's, there's a lot of writing in general that, that goes on in Portland. Um, so I have a stable of regulars who I can call upon at any time to come in to the studio. And those guys are great because they've all been in the studio. So they kind of know the deal. And the deal is you've got to keep the conversation flowing. You've got to, um, you've got to address each other by your, their first name. So listeners know who's talking, that kind of thing. Um, so they're all sort of trained. And then, <laughs> Uh, so Portland being such a, a destination for foodies and readers, we get nationally known um, culinary thinkers and writers coming through town every week. 
Um, they all come and read at Powell's Books, which is the largest independent bookstore in the country. And as soon as I see they're coming to town, I get in touch with their publicist and say, hey, I've got a great, a great you know, stop for your, your client's book tour. And they're always happy to send them over. So um, we just had Michael Ruhlman in. I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he's written uh, so many books on chefs and cooking. Um, so he was just on his, his uh, book tour and popped into the studio. So, you know, people like that almost every week I can get access to. Yeah. Rollman, um, I was the, uh, photographer for an event called Pigstock up in Traverse city, Michigan, um, where we would spend, uh, four days, uh, focusing on, um, butchering and, um, processing a pig, um, more specifically a Mangalista pig. And, um, Rollman was part of that event with, uh, Brian Polson, they wrote the book Charcuterie and this, this oh, yeah. book Salumi together. Um, Roman seems to be one of these kind of uh, incredible minds in the culinary world that, I mean, his book about the egg was amazing. And now I, I heard recently, this new book is about the grocery store, correct? Yes. Yeah. And, and I, I can only imagine his kind of look at the grocery store, even talking to him last summer at Pigstock. Um, this was one of his big concerns is that like, you know, the way we eat is um, ultimately not sustainable. And I mean, one of the focus of your podcast is sustainability. Um, did you guys touch on that when you talked to, when you talked to Roman? Yeah. So we, we do. The other thing I do is I trick my, my celebrity guests because they think they're going to come in and talk about themselves for an hour, which you guys are very kindly letting me do. Um, but what I do is I have three different topics. So the first topic was groceries in general, but I didn't ask him about his book. We, we discussed, um, we discussed sort of where groceries have come from and what, what's the future of grocery stores. Um, and he did, he did talk a lot about sustainability and and how we're going to keep this up in the future, but we covered the whole, the whole spectrum. Um, so are there other, are there, every guest you have, is that, are they in your, they come to the studio to, to live, sit with you, live, live with you? Yeah. Yes. Um, I get them all in the studio at OPB, Oregon Public Broadcasting, because I want to create the feeling that we are at, maybe not a dinner party, but you know, the floor top. The title is a reference to a table for four in a restaurant. And I want to create that feeling of rapport where um, even if these people are meeting for the first time, it's okay for them to tease each other and, and kind of engage with each other. So people, you know, publicists are always contacting me. Oh, can my client call in and be on your show? My response is no. I want them there. I want them live. I want them interacting with the other folks in the room. Even if they don't like each other, you know, that's an authentic experience as well. Are, are, are the guests aware of who the other guests are before they enter the room? Uh, yes. I email everybody in advance. So if there is an issue, like it'll, uh, it'll be aired out before the uh, <laughs> two, two men enter when yeah. they leave. <laughs> yes. I, ha- I have had to uh, <laughs> sort of reassess a lineup I had because it turned out that two guests hated each other and they told me that in advance thank goodness <laughs> really <laughs> that happens wow that happens in any industry you know have We've... you ever had two hosts that hate each other <laughs> <laughs> listen listen just because we're sitting next to each other this time usually you sit across from me 
Well, and I feel like we've already there's already been a couple people on our list that were just like, oh yeah, maybe potentially. So I I totally get it. I as the community grows, you start kind of people develop reputations, and you know you're you're trying to be sensitive of everyone that comes on the show. So I get it. Yeah. Did you pull anybody in yeah. from uh, the Portlandia scene? Oh, I wish I could have. You mean from the show? Yeah. Yeah, that would have been great. I don't have an in with them. Do you guys? Does anyone? I love that show. It's hilarious. I, I kind of stopped watching after a while because I couldn't keep up, but I was just watching it on the airplane of all places. And I was like, you know what? This is the funniest <laughs> show ever. I need to go back and and catch the seasons I missed. There's a couple of great so uh, uh, and food ones. There's the the organic chicken one, and then there was the brunch. Yep. Brunch. What? what? I don't yeah. know, Mad Max Brunch Village uh, kind of deal there. That was... Uh... Yeah. What What's interesting about Portlandia is and if you think about having a show based on one city, you know, I get nervous about Detroiters because I adore that show. I do And too. I'm like, are people not going to get it outside of Detroit? So hopefully Portlandia is the, the model that they've looked at and it'll keep going for a couple seasons. Yeah. it's. Uh, I think it might be its last season, but I think it's been going for seven seasons or something but the funny thing is actually a lot of the jokes in portlandia are not even like they're funny to someone who's not from here but for people here it's like oh no that is exactly how it is like they, they aren't even exaggerating like there was one where it's like four subaru wagons at a four-way stop and no one would go because everyone was like no you go no no you go no you go and it like went on for like an hour like that literally happens in Portland where no one will go at a four way stop and everyone's like, Oh no, no, you go ahead. <laughs> and everyone's chasing the to be right now. Everyone's chasing the sunlight <laughs> to the layout in yeah. the sun. <laughs> yeah. Not so you you're you you came from Chicago before that, right? Is that what I read somewhere? Yeah, I was in Chicago before moving to Portland, that's right. So a little bit of weather. I'm a fellow Midwesterner. A <laughs> little bit of weather difference there for you. Leaving the the bitter yeah. cold to the slightly less bitter cold. I, slightly, yeah, well, you know, just you know. You know, I I love Chicago, and I have to say, it can be more depressing to be in Portland in the winter because it's just constantly gray and drizzly. Seattle's even worse, but it kind of just makes your mood just so bitter when it's just gray and wet. Whereas if it's cold um, and clear and sunny, like it be can be in the Midwest, I think it's it's really beautiful. So you get the four top wins, the James Beard and, and the um, uh, IACP awards. Uh, where, where do you go from here? What, what's the next step? Is it, are you pitching uh, TV networks? Are you, uh, what, what's, uh, where do you go? Ooh, um, that would be fun. <laughs> pitching TV networks. Right now, I just need to get my listenership up um, because right now we have awesome listeners. They're totally devoted, but it's kind of just the food geeks. So I need to reach out to more and more communities, which is why I'm so grateful you guys have me on your show today. Um, everyone, if you're listening, we're on NPR one, we're on iTunes, we're on your favorite, um, podcast app. And we're also on the web on the OPB website. But yeah, I think before I can do anything else, I need to get out to a broader audience. Well, and Which I, is, you know, a challenge. It, it, no, it totally is to try to get that audience. Um, I just want to thank my wife because she is the one that kind of pushed to have you on because she is such a huge, huge fan of the show. So thank you uh, to Lish for uh, 
pushing that because I you've been a great guest so far. Oh, our our one listener, you. our one listener is uh, <laughs> it's, it's my wife. Yes. <laughs> um. So so in terms of um subject matter and and and, and that like to up the kind of the listenership. Do you think that it's I don't want to use the term dumbed down, but I think I, I don't know. My words escape me. Is it necessary to dumb down your conversations? Like you talk about some real high level stuff that's really interesting to people in the industry and maybe people that are um, very much like geeks, like you said. But is there some other formula that needs to happen to, to reach a broader audience? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I do try to stop um, my guests whenever they drop a term that is going to be unfamiliar to the general public. Um, and I'm not always successful, but I usually try to stop them and say, you know, you've got to tell the audience what you mean by such and such. Um, or even if, or if they reference a chef or a restaurant who most people in the industry know, I try to back them up and have them define, you know, where is that restaurant? Who is that chef? I'm not always successful, but I find, I mean, I am a huge podcast geek myself and I find I listen to podcasts about topics I know nothing about. And I find that I can kind of let the stuff that's over my head just go over my head. (laughs) But sometimes I go back and look up what they're talking about and learn a new term. So I think people, I think the act of learning is a pleasurable intrinsically pleasurable act for people, even though it doesn't seem seem like it these days. And I think people actually enjoy learning something new. And I, I, I don't know. I think it's a pretty approachable show. The other thing that I have going for me um, is that coming from wine writing, I'm a complete imbecile about most culinary topics. So I, most of the time I go into a topic knowing nothing about it and coming in from a very basic level. So my own stupidity, I think, helps the conversation somewhat because I'm always saying, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. That's how I felt about wine, actually, before the last four (laughs) weeks. We've been focusing on wine. I'm a a shout-out to your dog, Bourbon, because I'm a a bourbon (laughs) drinker myself. Uh, really into that. Oh, bourbon approved. Yes, thank you. Bourbon's wagging, wagging his tail right now. He's yes. very happy to hear that. <laughs> Historically, yeah. So it's been uh, Mich- uh, wine month here in Michigan. So um, I've got an opportunity to really delve into some of these topics, talk to a lot of the Michigan winemakers, go to the uh, Michigan Wine Showcase, uh, speak to you. Um, so it's been cool. I've had like a, a, a little crash course in wine, um, which has been really great. Um, inspired me. I'm going to head up north uh, later this uh, in the summer and visit some of the wineries um, that we talked about uh, from the people earlier and uh, do some more research and development is what it's called. Right? <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm really excited. I wish, I wish we could get more Michigan wines in other parts of the country. I, I get to taste them every time I do a wine competition. Like this coming weekend, I'm going to be participating in the Sunset Magazine wine competition. So I'm hoping I can taste the Michigan wines there. But, or actually at the Riesling Rendezvous, I go to that every once in a while. Um, and there will be amazing Rieslings from Michigan. But it's, it's too bad they don't, you know, they don't really get to Oregon because there's so much wine being made in Oregon that, I don't know, we, we don't get a lot of wine from other states. I think we're also like, just like cranking on capacity. We talked about that with Courtney. 
that like it just it doesn't a lot of it doesn't leave you know barely even makes it to Chicago. That was going to be my question about yeah. the Oregon wine that she just mentioned is how easy is it to find Oregon wine outside of Oregon? From, we get a uh, decent amount like William yeah. like that region from a person that doesn't know. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they are actually exported internationally. Um, there's a strong following for Oregon wines in Asia. Um, there are even one or two Oregon Pinot Noirs in, sold in France, which is crazy mm. because why would anyone in France drink anything other than Burgundy if they wanted Pinot Noir? Um, so Oregon's done a really good job of getting out there. So, so you should be able to find it in Michigan. <laughs> oh, t- yeah. There's, I feel like there's a, sections of it in certain places. Uh, we actually just had Lindsay Johnson out here for uh, part of Lush Life, if you're uh, familiar with her from her Portland roots. Um, one of the things... Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. She um, runs a bunch of cool uh, bartender training things. Um, one of the things I asked her is, you know, Portland has a much more developed kind of bar scene. Obviously, Portland has a much more developed uh, restaurant scene to, compared to Detroit. Uh, are there any kind of growing pains that you saw kind of watching the industry for the past 10 years that maybe you could give as advice to Detroit? Yeah, I, I think Detroit is is like Portland in many ways. Um, so I here's what I've noticed. Um, the restaurants that have done really well and become nationally and internationally known are restaurants where the chefs, had a, had an idea and started out very small and bare bones. Um, often it's with a food cart or a food truck, or it's like a very simple, small space. And it's all about the chef's imagination and creativity and inspiration from, you know, some region or nation in the world. Um, and the restaurants that fail in Portland are when investors come in and build out a beautiful space and spend a gazillion dollars on flatware and China and crystal and there's like a waterfall in the middle of the restaurant and blah, 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 blah. (laughs) And Portland diners see right through it and they just don't go. They're like, I'm not going to, I don't, I'm, I don't care about the waterfall. I want the vision, the creativity and the amazing authentic food that really comes from someone's heart. And I feel like Detroit is a similar community. I I feel like it's probably your restaurant scene is going to grow in the same way where it's really someone who's just, totally committed and passionate um, and start small and, and built up from there. I was wondering if you heard in the last couple of days, I was reading this article about, you mentioned food carts and also authenticity. I was reading this article about these two uh, women who uh, started a food cart based on making handmade tortillas in Portland, Cook's Burritos. They had gone down to Mexico and um, learned how to make these tortillas and then came back and they were making them. But they gave an interview to somebody in the area where they described how they basically <clears throat> were like peeking in windows. Like the women didn't in Mexico didn't want to give them the technique and they basically were like sneaking around. And anyways, they brought this uh, technique of making tortillas back. And so people were just lambasting them. Uh, this was in the last couple weeks. So they ended up shutting down um, a couple of days ago after not being able to really handle that, um, that flurry of negative press. But I don't know. I just wondered if you heard about that because it was floating around in the culinary news. Wait, so the so it's Kooks? Oh, update. Yes. Closed. I just I just looked it up because I actually had heard about Kooks, but um, I didn't hear about the uproar. Oh my gosh, you guys are ahead of me on Portland food news. Yeah. Um, I have been out of town, but I. So what was the? Well, what was they the they've. 
the controversy is they gave an interview to uh, there was a uh, I can't remember what the article is. I'll look it up. But in when they were talking about where they came up with the idea for their hand rolled tortillas, they described going on vacation in Mexico not to find the tortillas, but while they were there, they had these tortillas, and so they were trying to figure out how to make them and. The local women in this little town had told them what the ingredients, but they didn't want to share the techniques. And the the quote, it was actually a quote from one of the girls. And she's like basically like, yeah, we basically like snuck around and we're like looking in everybody's windows. And it seemed like it really stoked these like appropriation oh, sort of things. Yeah. So like uh, so, the uproar is that, oh, these people went down there and stole this technology almost and like hmm. brought it back and they're, you know, profiting off of it. So I was just wondering because some of the people that were commenting on the article was like, is there like another tortilla like scene in Portland? Like, I mean, it seemed like the reviews they got before the uproar was like pretty good, but then they just. So I think this is so interesting because I do think that one thing we haven't talked about as a nation is cultural appropriation in cuisine. Um, because at what point, I think there is a sort of a, a place that where it feels uncomfortable when you have someone who's white and privileged cooking the food of a society that's less privileged. I think if it's a society that's, you know, first world nation, that's perfectly, you know, they, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, if a French chef comes to the U.S. and cooks French food or whether, or an American chef cooks French food, it doesn't seem as kind of wrong to people as when an American goes to another country, steals recipes, comes back, and it's a country where, you know, people don't have any money and they're, you know, kind of a downtrodden group of people. So I, I can see why that caused controversy. And it's something I think about a lot. I actually have thought about talking about it on my show, um, but I haven't found the right group of people to discuss this topic. You have to be kind of careful um, with these kinds of conversations because, again, if you have three white people, four white people, you know, upper middle class people sitting around talking about this topic, it, it, they really aren't able to dig deep into what's what the problem is, you know, like yeah. <laughs> you need to kind of represent um, when you're talking about topics like this. Catherine, uh, thanks for being with us tonight. Uh, what, where can people find you again? Let's plug everything that every, everywhere people can find you. <laughs> okay. Please, please, please subscribe to the four tops. It is on iTunes, NPR one, your favorite uh, digital audio podcast app, or you can go to the OPB website and look for the four top. Um, we're also on Facebook and Twitter. Um, you can find me at katherinecole.com, and you can read about all my books and my work. Um, and, of course, if you are looking for the perfect gift for summer, consider buying a copy of Rosé All Day. It goes great with a bottle of Rosé as a wonderful hostess gift. And, of course, you'll have to buy a copy for yourself because it's so much fun to read. Was that annoying enough? <laughs> that, that was perfect. Thanks again, Catherine. Until next Thank time. Thank you, guys. I, until next yeah, time. I really appreciate you having me on. Until next time, dine well, friends. Thank you. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you. Thank you.